in the sense of what, what, what's touted in our culture today. It's not this Greco-Roman idea of just something that comes and goes. Um, and, and, and that obedience is not dry and just wrote following rules and regulations. And so he talked about that and, and how those two combine in our relationship with the Lord. But he didn't have time to talk about the Holy Spirit. And so as we ended the sermon last week in the services, we were kind of walking out. Alan came up to me and said, okay, now you have the Holy Spirit that's in there because I didn't have time to talk to it, talk about it. I said, that's great because I said there's so much more there. I just didn't have time to get there. So th- I want to focus on the role of the Holy Spirit in our obedience to and our love for God. That's our primary question. What is the link between the Holy Spirit and our obedience to and our love for God? Because Jesus here, he, he speaks of the Holy Spirit. If you've got a study Bible where your Bible has any sort of subheadings, I will almost bet you that one of your subheadings here in chapter 14 talks about the promise of the Holy Spirit or the role of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus didn't just kind of, he didn't come to this point and then, you know, try and teach systematic theology to, to the apostles. It wasn't like, all right, well, we got about an hour left before I'm going to the cross. Everybody get out your textbooks, turn to chapter 26, and let's discuss the role of the Holy Spirit systematically before I leave. He didn't do that. This, this, his bringing about of, uh, in this uh, discussion of the Holy Spirit happens within the context of the disciples in the upper room. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. All that's happened beforehand is leading up to where Jesus uh, is right now. And he brings up the Holy Spirit. And it has to do, the Holy Spirit here is speaking specifically in connection to our love for God and our obedience to him. And that's a crucial role and that's a crucial promise that Jesus gives not only to the apostles for the immediate context, but also to any believer that's going to follow in their wake. So that's what I want to look at this morning. And so as I was reading this passage, I really wrestled for a long time. How do I cover this? Because in John's typical fashion, John, John writes in wonderful one-liners, just one-liners, one-liners, one-liners. But unlike Paul, where Paul is very linear in his argumentation, and we in the Western culture can follow that, John is not. He's very much more one-line, one-line, one-line. And you read some just great, powerful one-liners, but it's really hard a lot of times to kind of put those together and follow the flow of thought. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to paint a picture of Jesus' overall vision for what he's casting for the disciples, and not only for the disciples, but also for all followers of Christ. Okay? So I want to link a couple texts right here in John uh, 13 and 14 together for that. And then I want to say, say, okay, here's, here's, here's how we fail to do that. I won't spend much time on that because that's not really necessary. And then point to, here's why the, the Holy Spirit, why he promises the Holy Spirit. So I want to try and link those together from a broader perspective. And my hope is, is that that'll help bring some clarity to some of the more nuanced aspects of, of this text. So perhaps maybe this afternoon, this evening, this next week, you could spend your own time reading through this chapter a little more and help bring some clarity to some of those specific one points that John brings up. Okay, so we're not going to just walk through this text, you know, verse by verse by verse, because that, that's just, it would really take multiple sermons, I think, to do that, to bring in concepts and, and other ideas to help bring clarity to it. But I think in the broader context of spending two weeks on it, where Alan talked about obedience and love last week, which was a major theme, this week I want to look at, okay, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in our obedience and love to God? 
Okay, so we'll focus primarily on those just two couple verses where, uh, where, uh, where Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. Okay, is that clear as mud? You can do that? Okay. All right, so what is, what is Jesus' overall vision for the disciples? What, what's the, what is the vision that he's casting? I want to draw a link between three texts. Okay, one is Jesus' love for the Father that's demonstrated through his obedience. So Jesus, uh, Jesus desires that the world, and when I say the world, all, all, uh, all those who are lost, all those who are without Christ, you know, essentially, that the world would see that Jesus loves the Father. And because he loves the Father, he obeys the Father. And, and his obedience is primarily in his going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Okay, look at, look at John uh, 14, 31. This is kind of a bookend, if you will, to this, to this section. Jesus says, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Okay, and this has been a drumbeat for Jesus throughout John's gospel. You know, everything that I speak, I speak because the Father tells me. Everything that I do, I do because the Father tells me. You, you see that Jesus' life is intrinsically linked to obedience to the Father. And he does so because he loves the Father. It's not like I've got this ball and chain on me and I've got to just follow these instructions. No, I love to obey the Father because the Father and the Son are, you know, are, are I'll say one, I want to be careful with that. You know, but there's such a unity there that the, 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 the Father loves to give instructions to the Son and loves for the Son to, to carry out those instructions. And the Son loves to obey the Father and carry those instructions out. And in the process, both are mutually glorified. Okay? That's really hard for us to grasp because in our closest relationships, that rarely even happens. In inevitably, somebody's got a will that's a little bit stronger. Somebody's got a bit of an angle that they want in you know, any sense where that type of thing might happen, and it taints it. Okay, in, in the Trinitarian relationship, the only place we actually see that that happens perfectly. That type of unity, that type of glorification actually happens together. But this is Jesus' overall vision. He's come into the world so that the world would see that he, as the Spirit-anointed Messiah, has come to glorify the Father through his obedience, and that obedience leading him to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Okay, So there's one, there's one link in this chain. But further, Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's going to leave. And he gives this commandment to the disciples. Look at John 13, verse 30. My page is torn, so I have to kind of put, put it together mentally in my head. <laughs> verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by your loving other people, by, by your putting the holy good of others before your own or pursuing the holy good of others, by your doing that, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. Remember what he's just done? How has Jesus just demonstrated this kind of love? Remember they were arguing who's greater? And Jesus, he takes off his robe and he girds himself in a cloth and he washes their feet. Right? And he, and, he, and he does this as a demonstration to them of what this servant-type love looks like. 
And so Jesus says, this is the way everybody's going to know that you're my disciples, that you love me, is by your, this type of love for one another. Do you see that love and obedience going together? So the same love and obedience that Jesus is displaying in his relationship with the Father, he then takes that and casts that on the disciples. It says, you disciples, follow in this same path so that the world will know that you are my disciples. Okay, because then, here's the third link. He says in verse 15, chapter 14, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. This is the, this is the commandment to love one another. Love the Lord and love one another. It's the overarching commandment that brings everything together in all of Scripture. And so there's your link, is that Jesus' love for the Father, which is demonstrated through his obedience, Jesus then turns and casts that onto the disciples, that they would do the same thing after he has gone. And this would be a demonstration to the world of, the, of, the, of God's infinite value and infinite glory. Now where do you get that from? Because glory is not actually right here. Well, Jesus speaks of this several times throughout John. One of those aspects is in John 7, 18, where Jesus is speaking to the, uh, to the, to the Pharisees, speaking to a group of Pharisees, and, he, and they're, you know, they're basically saying, you're, you're a glory monger. You want glory. And Jesus says, no, if, if I speak for my own self, then I want my glory. But if I speak for the one who sent me, I want his glory. He's basically saying, if I came and I spoke on my own accord, yeah, you, you'd be right but I'm not. I'm speaking. I'm whatever I say, I say because the Father gives it to me to say. And it's because of that that I, I desire the Father's glory. I desire that the Father be exalted and be magnified and be seen as infinitely valuable and the most infinite treasure because He is. And that's what I, what I want. When Jesus, remember when, uh, when Judas betrays Him in John chapter 13, right after Judas betrays Him and He leaves, Jesus says to the disciples, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. N now God is seen as infinitely valuable and infinitely worthy of praise. That doesn't make sense right there until you complete it, and Jesus goes to the cross, dies for the sins of the world, the grave can't hold him, and he rises and sits at God's right hand. N that, now that makes sense, because now the deal's been sealed. Jesus, Judas leaves, the, the actions are now set in motion from a human standpoint that Jesus is going to go to the cross and nothing from a human standpoint is going to stop him. His time has come. And so that's what Jesus wants for the disciples. In, the, in this moment, the, this moment right before he's getting ready to go to the cross, he's giving them comfort, he's laying this responsibility on them that they would love one another, they would love others the same way that he has loved them, and, and that would couch their obedience to God. This is the commandment that he's given to them. And that they would show, they would demonstrate to the world that, he, that they are his disciples. Now the problem then becomes, okay, well, why don't we just do that on our own? I mean, is that, is that what we need, is just more instruction? We just need better instruction. We just need better clarity about what love is. 
right? We need, we need better clarity about what love is, what obedience is. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all, because you look throughout the Old Testament, and what's the drumbeat that runs through? God says, your heart's far from me. No, you, you're, you're, you're tainting, you're not following my instructions, and your heart is far from me. And this is the pattern that just occurs over and over and over in the Old Testament, right? You kind of see a picture of, of the fallen state of humanity with Judas and, and, and Peter in, in John chapter 13, okay? Judas betrays Jesus, Okay? I mean, here's, here's a man who was brought into the inner court of the Son of God. He's seeing all that Jesus is doing, and yet he chooses the love of money over the love of the Son of God. He betrays Jesus. And then right after that, Jesus gives encouragement. Right? He gives encouragement right after, uh, after Judas leaves, and he says, a new commandment I give to you, uh, you know, love, love one another as I have loved you. And Peter says, where are you going? And Jesus, uh, you know, Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't follow me. And Peter wants to assert himself. Oh, no, 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 I'm different than these guys. I'm different than, than that guy that's going to betray you. I will never betray you. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. I mean, here's a picture of the fallen state of of. of uh, of our of our hearts is incapable of that type of love and obedience to God. Paul captures this well in Romans three, where he says, "There's none righteous, not one." And he quotes from the Psalms and basically says, "You know, from the top of our head to the tip of our toes, we're we're sinful. We're sinful. Our hearts are far from God, and we're disobedient to His good instructions." It's the fallen state of humanity that they truly do not know God as characterized by lack of love for him, for who he truly is, and desire to obey him joyfully. So we need more than just instruction. Jesus didn't come just to say, well, here's a better way to live. And we need more than just smoke and lights and a few good feelings towards God. What we need is actually Him. And this is what Jesus promises. This is why Jesus then points and brings out the Holy Spirit that He promises will come. But Jesus came and He gives us an example of that Holy Spirit. You know, at the incarnation, Jesus lays aside all of His rights and all of His privileges. He he chooses to be clothed Himself in flesh, to be fully man, led by the Spirit led by the Holy Spirit. This was what God had promised from the Old Testament, that he promised that he would put his spirit upon the Messiah and that the Father would delight in the Son, Isaiah 42.1. That the Spirit of God would rest upon him and this would be a spirit of wisdom and of understanding and justice, Isaiah 11.2 and 3. And Jesus, when Jesus was in the temple in Luke 4, Jesus stands up and he reads from Isaiah And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I've come to proclaim sight to the blind. Uh, And I can't, I'm drawing a blank on the rest of it, but hopefully you're tracking with me. No, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is is upon me. He's quoting from Isaiah, you know, there, saying this prophecy is being fulfilled in your midst. that, That the Son of God didn't come on his own accord to follow the Father on his own. 
that he subjected himself to the weaknesses of the flesh and being led by the Holy Spirit. He laid that out as an example for us. Consider even what Jesus says here in John 14. Notice the language that he says. Look at verses 10 and 11. He's speaking to Philip. He says, do you not believe? Because the, Philip says, show us the Father. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Is, is the Father in Jesus? This Maybe this is a question for the kids. <laughs> is the Father in Jesus? No. What is he meaning? That abiding aspect is that the Holy Spirit is with him. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now look at verse 17, uh, 17, and 18, 17, 18, and 19. Now this is where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to the apostles. He says, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. Do you see what he's doing? He's connecting the, the very Holy Spirit that, that, that is leading him is the very Holy Spirit that he promises will be with you and will abide with you. Now, just let that soak in. I mean, I, I had to think on this, that the, the very things that Jesus did, now I'm, I'm not talking about just his miracles, but his obedience to the Father, the wisdom that he spoke, those things were being, were, were, were fueled and powered by the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm going to give you this same spirit. That to me just blows my mind. And, and it tells me, I'm like, and I'm getting, I'm shooting straight to the application. So I'm not going to get too much far into this. Otherwise, we'll just cut it short. But I'm like, how, how often do I, how often do I rely on the Holy Spirit? How many times do I get up in the morning and I open my, my Bible and say, okay, Lord, show me something. And I rush through it. And I close it and go about my day. And I'm like, okay, I've got I to muster up power just to get through this, get through that, get through, you know, do these things. And the Holy Spirit's just not even, not even, in, the, not even in the backfield. You're not, not even thinking about that. Not even asking, Lord, what is your will? And Jesus, he promises, he says, I will give you another helper. Give you the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit that I'm currently now trusting to lead me in obedience and love towards, towards the Father. So Jesus sets that example for us. But Jesus is leaving, right? Jesus is leaving so that the Spirit would come. You see, we needed a helper in heaven, and we needed a helper on earth. In John chap uh, 1 John chapter 2, Jesus says, or John says, we have a helper. We have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a helper in heaven who's pleading our case before God. He's an advocate for us. He's standing in for us. But we also have a helper on earth, which is what Jesus had promised. We have a helper who is 
pleading God's case with us. Pleading God's case with us that God's plan is better. That God's obedience to God is better. That God is more glorious and more joyful and of greater value than any earthly treasure we could try and lay hold of. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Spirit is what we need, and that's what God had promised to us. This shouldn't come as a surprise, especially as the apostles are looking back on this. They're going, oh my gosh, this is, this is what the Lord had promised to us long ago. In Joel chapter 2, uh, Joel prophesied to, to Judah. He said that God would pour out His Spirit on all man, mankind, that whoever would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. Take a look at Ezekiel 36. I just want to show this briefly. Ezekiel 36. So Israel, through Israel's hard-heartedness, they profane the name of the Lord among the nations. Ezekiel 36, 21, God says, I have concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations. Here's, my, here, here's the issue that I take up with you, Israel, people of God. You wear this mantle of my people, and yet you have slandered my name through the nations. It's, I'm not seen as, I'm not, I'm not rightly exalted, lifted up, and seen as who, who I am, as glorious. And because of that, God's glory was at stake here. And God desired that the nations would know him as he truly is. He says in verse, uh, verse 11, one that Israel, you'll know me as the Lord. Verse 23, the nations will know that I'm the Lord. Verse 38, then they will know that I'm the Lord. So God has a very, very big concern that the nations know who he is and know him rightly and appropriate him rightly. So that's the context. That, uh, and they would know him through his grace because what he promises in here is Israel, in spite of your disobedience, in spite of your hard-heartedness, I'm going to redeem you. How would he do that? Look at verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle you with clean water. I'll make you clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. That's justification. It's a New Testament term we know as justification. You'll be sprinkled clean. You'll be justified in my sight. But not just that. I'm going to sanctify you by giving you a new heart. Verse 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'll give you a new heart. But that's not just any heart. Look at what he says about this kind of heart that he gives you. He says, I will give you I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you, from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe all my ordinances. See, God's purpose in sending the Holy Spirit in the new covenant is that he would come alongside believers. That's that, that uh, paraclete is the Greek word for, for helper there. He's an advocate. He's one who comes alongside the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant would come alongside believers and be their advocate. He would be the 
the very incarnate present, uh, presence of God with us. He'd be the helper that would provide comfort, admonishment, teaching, wisdom, stirring up of affections, all of these things for us to obey God. It's his purpose. It's what Jesus promises that he would do. Remember in the New Testament that Paul writes about, he writes to the Corinthians, he says, your body's a temple. Old temple, done away with. Your body's the temple in which the Spirit of God dwells in you. So how would the Spirit do this? How does the Spirit do its work? Primarily through this revelation through God's uh, of revelation of truth in God's word. Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. Look at verse 26 in John 14. Back in John 14. There's two things he says the spirit's going to do. He says the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he'll bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So when he's going to bring to light old things, that's the remembrance of all that I said to you, so he's going to initially, for the apostles, he's going to clarify to the apostles, to the New Testament writers, all that Jesus had taught, linking those things to the Old Testament so that they could accurately record, co- record all of these things for our benefit and our instruction. I mean, this is the Word of God. right? This is what the Holy Spirit would do, would bring to their remembrance all the things that Jesus taught, would connect those things with God's prophecies and promises in the Old Testament, so that we then have the full counsel of God's word. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, as he spoke of this, and he said, Now we have received the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What's he talking about? He's talking about the very things that he's teaching that are being written and recorded that become the book of Corinthians. He's talking about the word of God. Right? These things didn't come from mere men. These came from the Spirit. To bring to light old things, but would also teach new things. Would also teach new things. Jesus didn't do a systematic theology. He didn't sit down and go, okay, here's everything you need to know about who God is. Right? It's not written in that, in that format. But the Spirit would provide every ounce of knowledge and wisdom necessary to confirm us to the image of Christ. It's not why we're just given a whole bunch of list of instructions and say do these things. We have a relationship with God. We don't have like a contract. It's a relationship with Him through His Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit would teach it, would bring together the full counsel of God through the Scriptures that we would know Him fully and be equipped to fulfill His desires and convey his message of, message of grace and mercy to the nations. So this is what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus promises this. He's going to send you another helper. The Holy Spirit comes is alongside the Christian to provide whatever help is necessary. Comfort, admonishment, wisdom, teaching. Primarily framed through the word of God which the Holy Spirit inspired for the believer to obey God. So that's what Jesus promises here. So now, how does that apply to us? 
What do we, what do, we do with that? Let me ask you, who is leading your relationship with God? Is that you or is that the Holy Spirit? And you can test this. Test this. Test this by your affections. Do you see him as your greatest treasure and desire that he be glorified in your life and the lives of others? We sing the song, Is He Worthy? Ask yourself, is he worthy? I mean, not like, not like yes, I'm going to answer this and like, you know, like I'm taking a test. Yes, I know the answer. Yes, he's worthy. I mean, look at your life. Is, is, does, it, does, it, does it convey that? Does it convey that to others? Look at Jesus as that example where Jesus' life conveyed to others that the Father was his greatest joy and his greatest was, was of infinite value and glory and he desi- desired to obey the Father in order to, to demonstrate that to the nations. And he says, now you, my disciple, you believer, go and do the same. What about your obedience? Does your obedience flow out of your desire for him? Is there obedience at all? Is there a desire to pursue holiness? Not because, well, I've got to do this in order to get into heaven. We call that workspace righteousness. But that seeing Christ and, and seeing God and all that he is more and more and what he's done in his infinite display of grace and mercy, that you know, pursuing the Lord and being conformed to the image of Jesus, that's what I want. That's, that's God's desire for me, and I see that that is good, and I desire to pursue that. Is that present with you? I'm asking myself these same questions. I'm being very, very humble by what the Lord showed me. I want to challenge you also, as you ask that, beware of living in a Christian no man's land. Beware of living in a Christian no man's land. If you remember back in your history, World War I, battles between two sides, and there was an area that was called no man's land. And it was between two battle lines. And, I mean, it was a dangerous area to, to wander and to, and, and to exist. And there were people who actually deserted both sides and lived in those trenches and lived underneath those grounds. And it was a terrifying thought. But they deserted both sides, but they knew that the war was going on, but they refused to latch on. And so they just kind of existed here. And that's, that's a thought that's pervasive in our, in our culture. That, you know, I want the benefits of Christianity, whatever that can be. I want the friendships. I want the fellowship. You know, I want the, the, I want the, the good feelings. You know, I, I want the... Uh, the career advancement, maybe that's oppor- you know that, that's available by rubbing shoulders with people, you know, what whatever, all of these things. But you know, I don't really want to follow God. I don't, I don't really want, I don't really love God. And so, there's the danger of existing in this Christian no man's land, not being really led by the Spirit of God that's framed by the Word of God sampling and tasting but never actually being engaged one other example you'll know i love the chronicles of narnia and in the last book called the last battle of the chronicles of narnia there's a scene where aslan has appeared to the uh, the kings and queens of old from narnia which is a picture of the 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 children of god and there's been a battle between the evil chloramines and the narnians 
And there's a group of the Narnians called the dwarves who've decided that they're basically going to defect and become their own third party. And they've said several times, we're not for Narnia, we're not for Aslan, we're for the dwarves, we're for ourselves. And the, in, the, in this scene, Aslan appears, and the dwarves have kind of been ushered into this area. They've been pushed into this stable area that's completely transformed, but they still feel like they're wandering around in the darkness. And, and, and precious Lucy, one of the kings and queens, she goes to Aslan and she says, Aslan, I, f- I fear for these, these dwarves. Can you make them see? And he says, I will show you what I can do and what I won't do. And he goes over and he makes noise and he does all of these things that you would think a lion would do. And from their perspective, from, from the kings and queens' perspective, he's there, he's very real. It's very clear. But the dwarves are blind because they've rejected him. They've said, we don't believe in him. And they're lost in this no man's land. They're, cl- they're completely lost in this no man's land. And in that, I don't know that this was C.S. Lewis's intention, but I was reading that, I'm studying, I'm going, this is a picture of carnal Christianity. This is a picture of the people who say, yeah, we, we're, we're for the church, but we really don't want to be obedient to God, and we really don't have a love for God. We've tasted and we've seen of the good things to come, but we really don't want to, we don't really want to hitch our wagons to this. Existing in this no man's land. And there's no sense that the Spirit's actually active. Right there. That's a dangerous place to be. I'm going to caution you about that. Examine your life. Where are you? Where is your heart? Beware of living in a Christian no man's land. But God's gift to the Holy Spirit isn't to make us obedient like puppets, but His function is tied to our desire and willingness to follow the Lord. I don't have the time to chase that down. But you think about the New Testament letters that, that are written and how many times there's admonishments there to follow the Lord. All of the instructions that are given to follow the Lord, put on the new, you know, the new self, take off the old self. All of these things are given because there's a part that we play in that. There's a battle that goes on between the old self and the new self. And the new self is led by the Spirit of God and the old self is led by the flesh. And there's a part that we definitely play in leaning on the Spirit. This is why Jesus was led by the Spirit to give us that example. He didn't have the sin nature and yet He still chose to be led by the Spirit to give us the example so that we would know what that looks like. the will of the hearer that must be touched by the word of the Lord in order to be changed by his spirit. A couple final things. One about prayer. Ask the Holy Spirit for victory where you see failures. I don't know for you, but I mean, how many times that I struggle or fail or I just find that, th- that, that I'm, I've gone through my day or I've even gone through several days or even close to a week and I'm like, Lord, I didn't even hardly prayed. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do better tomorrow. There's not a sense of going and saying, Lord, strengthen your spirit within me because it's your spirit that leads me to pray and I need him to be my advocate now. I don't do that. When I'm reading this, I'm going, I should. He's given me an advocate. He's given me a helper. Lean on that helper because I'm not equipped to do it on my own. That's not the intention. Also, ask him to show you opportunities to love others 
in ways that are in uncomfortable and inconvenient for you. And I say that because if you're like me, probably the reason you miss them is because they're uncomfortable and because they're inconvenient. Now, if, if this were normative, everybody would do it. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole reason that the bulk of the Scripture is the Old Testament that shows that we don't love God rightly and we don't obey Him. Right? Our hearts are not there and we need the advocate that He sends, His Holy Spirit, in order to love this way and we should lean on Him and ask Him, Lord, show me, give me opportunities to love people and then empower me to do that rather than choose something that's more convenient or less intrusive to my own plans for today. And then lastly, spend time in his word daily. If Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, how much more, that that was the son of God's very sustenance, how much more should it be for us who follow him? You know, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, some of y'all sing that on the way home, I'm sure. You know, those are fruits, right? As Nathan was talking about with growing, those are, those are fruits. I mean, they come out of being connected to God through His Spirit. They don't just appear. I mean, I don't know how many times I read those. Like, okay, I'm going to do better at being patient. Uh, you know, I'm going to do better at self-control. I'm going to do better at these things. But they are fruits, of the Spirit, which means that I have to rely on the Spirit in order for them to actually blossom and bloom and produce. It's not myself. And those come through His Word and through prayer, through communion with the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, and relying on Him. So let me close in prayer. Jesus gives this as a comfort. By the way, this whole the theme of chapter 14 is comfort. It really is. And he said, and that promise of the Holy Spirit is a comfort. I'm not leaving you on your own. I'm going to give you another helper. You're going to have me as your helper in heaven as your advocate. I'm going to send I'm going to send the Holy Spirit as your helper here. To be a comfort to us. Be someone we run to when we need that help, which should be daily. I'll close in prayer. Father God, I feel very very ill-equipped to speak your message this morning. I look at my own life and see failure, see far more tendency and far more of a pattern to try and lift myself up by my bootstraps. Far more of a pattern and tendency to pursue more of an American dream than a life that's characterized by love and obedience to you and leaning on your spirit. Father, would you change my heart? Would you Stir your spirit within me to pursue more and more of what you desire to see. Remove the veil so I can see more of your glory and your infinite worth. Treasure you more. That obedience would be joyful. Father, if that's the echo of anyone here 
this morning. I pray that you would make that so. Amen. Father, we as a church, as a local expression of your global body, would be known as your disciples because of our love for you, characterized by our joyful obedience, that the world would look at us with this peculiar interest because we desire to make much of Jesus. Father, would you give us clarity about who you are through your Spirit? Would we would you encourage us to be, spend more and more time in your word that we would know more and more about you and Father as we'll talk about next week Lord willing what it means to abide in you Father would you do all of these things and more for your glory for our good. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Let me give you a benediction from Romans 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're dismissed. Have a good week.